If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. That's where we'll camp out this morning here in just a minute. Um, but to get us started this morning, there are... Uh, so I have four young children. Many of you know that. If you don't, you know that now. Um, but I have four young children, and there are, I've learned, there are certain sounds when you have children that are very concerning. Um, it starts whenever you have, like, like really, really young children, like you're a new parent, and you got, like, you know, this new child, and they grow, and they begin to make that transition from, from the bottle uh, to actually eating a little bit of solid food. Uh, and so one of the sounds that's really concerning as a parent of young children is when you hear the coughing, right? Because you think, oh no, my child's choking, right? Now, if I'm four kids in now, now I know coughing is good. I'm like, as long as you're coughing, you're fine, okay? Keep coughing. Um, but like, I remember the, the first time you, you hear your child start to cough, that's a kind of a, a concerning sound, okay? Or uh, maybe once they get a little older and they're, you know, they kind of have, they're able to go play in their own room by themselves. Any sort of crash or thud is concerning, right? Usually, like, uh, once you progress a little bit, you hear the crash or the thud, and you wait to make sure there's no crying, and you're like, okay, it's fine, and they're all right. Um, right you go on a little more, and one of the things that is, is terrifying to me, um, as I learned this last week, is the sound of running water in a room where there's no adult. Um, as happened in our house this week, my, one of my middle, my middle son, he flooded the bathroom floor, and so, um, yeah. So any sound of running water where there is no adult present is a concerning sound. Um, or maybe the most concerning sound, though, is... It, you beat me to it. You know. You know. Right? The most concerning sound, to, to steal a quote from is it Simon and Garfunkel, is the sound of silence. Right? Because, again, I have four kids. My house is always loud <clears throat> excuse me, and noisy. There's usually some combination of yelling, screaming, crying, uh, usually all those at once. And so there's these moments when uh, all of a sudden things are, are quiet. And it, it, it doesn't hit you at first. Right, because you're like, this is, this is nice. It's quiet. And then you're like, oh no. Something terrible has happened. Because it's quiet. And so you go and you find out where your kids are. And it could be, like, it's usually not good. Right? Those of you with parents, or that are parents, or you've maybe been entrusted to watch young children at some point. It's usually not good whenever they're silent. I have, uh, actually I take that back. I have not personally witnessed any crayon murals on the wall yet, knock on wood, okay? But I have walked in and found ingredients being poured out on the kitchen floor. Uh, I have walked into a room and with one of my sons drawing a Spider-Man mask on the other son's face with a permanent marker, okay? I mean, it's just like, it's never good, the sound of silence. Like, it is the most concerning sound as a parent. Like, I would rather hear thud, crash, running water, crying, than silence, all right? But now as concerning as, as the sound of silence is, uh, as when we have children, the, the, the silence of our, our children, uh, to kind of get us to, to where we're going to spend some time this morning, what about when 
God seems silent. Right? How concerning is it to us when, when we feel like God is silent? He is distant. Uh, he, is, uh, he feels like he is far removed or feels like he just doesn't really care what's going on. Right? Because most of us have probably uh, been through seasons of life where we've, we've felt that. Like it's felt like God is silent or it's felt like he doesn't care or it's felt like he is just kind of off doing something else, has no interest in in our lives. And in fact, that's kind of where, uh, where we pick up this morning. We're going to look at Luke 1, but, but to set that up, I actually want to turn back to the, uh, to the end of the Old Testament. All right, this is, this is, you don't have to turn there if you want to, you can, but it'll be on the screens. This is Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. The last two verses of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Quite an encouraging word, right? And so that's how the Old Testament closes. And, and from much of my life, like in my Bible, it's one page, right? One page between Malachi 4 and the beginning of the New Testament. Confession, I wasn't even until cemetery, cemetery, I hope I wasn't in a cemetery. <laughs> I was, it wasn't until I was in seminary that I realized that, that that one page between the Old and New Testament is a significant gap. Maybe you're here this morning and you didn't know that. Um, right? that, that gap between the, the close of the Old Testament and when the uh, the birth of Jesus kind of breaks onto the scene in the New Testament. That gap, one page in my Bible, is 400 years. 400 years. And it's 400 years of silence from God. There's no prophets to, to come and speak on behalf of God. There's no uh, dreams or visions like there was in the days of Joseph or, or Daniel. Uh, there's no sort of... Uh, intercessor that, that would meet with God and meet with the, the people of Israel, like Abraham or Moses. There's just, like God goes off the map for 400 years. The people of Israel receive nothing from their God. Right, they've got his promises, right? They were, they were written by the prophets and the scribes, but in terms of ongoing, like God speaking with his people, they've got nothing for 400 years. And so uh, we, we can hear that number and kind of gloss over it, but just to put that in perspective, if we were to rewind 400 years, um, the country that we live in and know and love for all its power and might and majesty and all, whatever we want to say about it, 400 years ago, America was still 150 years from even being a thing. Right? I mean, it puts it in perspective a little bit. Right? That, that 400 years ago, America wasn't even a glimmer in some revolutionist's eye. Right? And so that's what God's people endured for 400 years, just silence. And that brings us to uh, where we are this morning in Luke chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can read along. I'm going to read a pretty hefty chunk of Scripture, verses 5 through 25, Luke chapter 1. Here is what Luke writes, starting in verse 5. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah 
of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you, to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So what we've, we've got here is uh, we're kind of introduced to two people. I right? introduced to... Zechariah and Elizabeth, and so to kind of set up what's going on here, you've got uh, Zechariah said he was from a priestly lineage, uh, and then so was Elizabeth. She's from the she's one of the daughters of Aaron. It says, and so what you've got is Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're both basically from a long line of uh, priests. That's their their background, their history, their lineage. If we were to kind of, it's not exactly the same, but kind of in modern day terms, these are both like preachers' kids. Okay. And unlike most preachers' kids, um, it says they were righteous and blameless, and they walked in the statutes of the Lord. All right, so Zechariah and Elizabeth were not only they're from a long line of, uh, of priestly lineage, but it says that they were basically faithful to the Lord. And I want you to imagine um, it's a little bit of conjecture, but it's not crazy to think like how difficult would this have been for them? Right, every morning. Waking up and, and believing God's promises from the Old Testament that, that, that he was working for the redemption of Israel. That he's, uh, he has a plan. That one day he's going to send a Messiah. He's going to send the Christ. And so like day after day, week after week, year after year, they've, they've believed this. They've given their lives to this. All the while, and this is, this is a conjecture, it's not crazy to think that, that there was probably their peers, many who... I mean, God had been silent for, 
400 years, maybe they, they turned. Right? They, they walked away from the faith. They turned their backs on God. And they, right? Because you could understand that. God hasn't done anything amongst, him, amongst them for 400 years. All these plans and, and promises in the Old Testament about how God was for them and he was going to save them and redeem them and had a plan to prosper them and not to harm them. And here's 400 years of silence and they've got nothing. So it's not unreasonable to think that that after generation, after generation, after generation of God's silence, that, that some walked away. And, and yet seeing that, Zechariah and Elizabeth remained faithful. Right? They wake up every day and they walk uh, in righteousness, blameless before the Lord, right? obeying His commandments to the best of their ability. Not perfect, but they were faithful. Right? And, if, and if anybody deserved uh, the Lord's favor, if anybody deserved the Lord's blessing, it would be them, you would think. Right? When others were turning away, that they remained faithful, even after all these years of silence. But what we read is that um, despite their faithfulness, that Elizabeth was, was barren. She's, they're unable to have children. And not only are they unable to have children, but they're kind of past the point of being able to have children. Right? And, and if you're familiar with uh, kind of the, the culture there in the first century, uh, biblical times, like to not have a child was a very significant thing. Uh, it was considered actually to be, uh, it was considered that, that you were um, kind of being punished by God in some way if you were unable to have a child. And so you've got this faithful couple that have given their lives to following the Lord and walking in obedience to the Lord, and here they find themselves without child. And so from a human perspective, like it just looks hopeless, right? I mean, 400 years of silence. God's off the radar for 400 years. And despite their, their faithfulness and their obedience and their walking with the Lord, despite that, here they are, they've lived their entire lives uh, following after the Lord. And still, this probably a prayer they've prayed thousands of times for a child. It's just gone unanswered. I think what Luke is setting up here for us is this is a situation that appears, at least from our vantage point, as just hopeless. There's no hope here. At least not from a human perspective, but as God often does, there's light invades dark places, which is what is about to happen. So what we see next is... If you go on in verse 8, you see that Zechariah ultimately is chosen for his duty in the temple. So as, as a priest, um, one of his duties would have been to, uh, to, to perform service to the temple. But it wasn't something that, uh, that everyone got to do just all the time. It was a kind of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Right, so Zechariah uh, chosen, it says that he was chosen uh, kind of, uh, they make it, it sounds like it's by random, right, or coincidence. He's, he's chosen by lots, but... What we know that in God's economy, there is no randomness, there is no coincidence, there's a purpose for everything. And so, Zechariah is chosen for temple duty uh, for this quarter, once in a lifetime event. And, and what we see here is that, that God is he's beginning to orchestrate some things. Now, Zechariah doesn't know it yet, but he's about to, right? Because as he's in the temple, um, what he would do is he would go in and there'd be several priests that would go in and they would begin to perform their different duties and all that. But, but eventually, 
uh, all those, all some of the other priests would, would basically leave, and Zechariah would be there left alone to perform this once-in-a-lifetime priestly duty. And so Zechariah, by all accounts, would assume he's alone in the temple. But what Zechariah finds out soon is that he's not alone in the temple, right? Because the text tells us that an angel of the Lord appeared to him uh, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. That's in verse 11. And so as you can imagine, Zechariah is terrified, right? He thinks he's alone in this temple, and all of a sudden he realizes that not only is he alone, or not only is he not alone, but there's an angel of the Lord that is present. And that's the, all throughout the Bible. You see, anytime that there's an angel that has a, this interaction with, with humanity, like the response is always fear, right? This reverential, weighty sort of fear to what's, what's happening. And Zechariah feel, feels that, right? It says, Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, the angel, and fear fell upon him. But then the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Right? Do not be afraid. So in this moment of, of weightiness and in, in Zechariah's fear, the angel gives him good news, and he's about to give him a lot of good news. The angel says, do not be afraid or fear not. Like that's, that's the whole point of this Advent series over the next few weeks. There's a lot of different stories kind of surrounding Jesus' birth uh, where the angel is, is saying to different individuals or different groups of people, hey, do not be afraid. Because what we're bringing you is good news. Right? And that's what's about to happen for Zacharias. The angel says, do not be afraid. Then he says this, for your prayer has been heard. All right, so the prayer there, it's actually based on kind of the, the language and the tense and all that. Uh, it's, it's probably a reference to um, his prayer that he would have prayed in the temple. So as a priest, Zechariah is in the temple, uh, and, and what he's doing is he's praying just for the redemption of Israel. Right, he, he, he knows the promises of the Old Testament, that God has promised to send uh, a Savior. He's promised to send a Messiah to redeem Israel, and they had some different understandings of exactly what that meant, but his prayer ultimately was that God would come, make good on his promise to redeem Israel. And so the angel says to Zechariah, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. In other words, all those promises from, from of old that, that God's going to send a Messiah, he's going to send a Savior, he's going to redeem his people. The angel says to Zechariah, Zechariah, that prayer has been heard. In other words, redemption is near. Salvation is near. The Messiah is is near. Hope is near. But then on top of that, it's not just that uh, it, it's, yes, there's hope for Zechariah or for all of God's people, but even for Zechariah and Elizabeth individually. He says, in addition to your prayer being heard, your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you shall call his name John. Right? So it's on top of the redemption, on top of salvation. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth have the hope of a son. But then things kind of change here in verses 16 and, and 17. He's, before that, the, the angel is giving, giving uh, Zechariah this announcement of, of the birth of his son, and he's, you're going to have a son, you're going to name him John, and this is all the things that you're going to do. He's not supposed to have strong drink, and the Holy Spirit's going to be with him, even from his mother's womb. 
But then in verses 16 and 17, it takes on a whole new level of significance. Because it says, the angel making this announcement to Zechariah says, and he, talking about John, their son, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children. I don't know if you remember the words we just read at the end of the Old Testament. Right? The words, last words of the Old Testament is this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And then here, the angel says to Zechariah, that your son will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah, being a priest, he would have felt the weight and the significance of this. This is not just some... um, Not just some random announcement. This is the angel saying, hey, all of God's promises are about to be fulfilled. This promise of a Savior, this promise of a Messiah, it's coming. He's coming. Right? And he will. So not only are you going to have a son, as good of news as that is, but your son is actually going to prepare the way for the Lord. This son of yours is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. He's going to prepare the way for the Savior. This day, this day that you have waited for, this day that you have prayed for, this day that you have walked faithfully in obedience to the Lord because you believe it's going to happen, that day is almost here. And Zechariah, your son, is going to prepare the way for that. It's significant. It's significant. So, as you can imagine, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they've, they've been doing this for a while, right? Waking up day after day, trying to follow faithfully. And so there's some doubt. Zechariah's response in verse 18. He says, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Side note, there's some wisdom here for you fellas. Notice that Zechariah says, He is an old man. He doesn't call his wife old. She's advanced in years. That was free. That has nothing to do with the topic today, but you can take that and, and remember it. All right? But there's, there's doubts, right? He demands a sign. How can I know that this is true? This good news that you bring me, how do I, how do I know? How can I believe it? And then I love the, the angel's response. All right? his, his response first is his identity. He says, I am Gabriel. Even that name alone has significance. The word Gabriel just means man of God. But the angel Gabriel appeared in the Old Testament. This is not his first time on the scene. And this is something, again, that Zechariah would have known. All of a sudden, there's weight to this. Gabriel, this man of God, is shown up on the scene. And look what he says next. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. There's credibility here. That the angel says, hey, here's how you can believe it. 
Because I stand in the presence of God. I was, I was just with God. He sent me to give you this word. That you're going to have a son. And you're going to name him John. And he's going to prepare the way for the Lord. Right? There's a weightiness. There's a credibility to that. It's significant. Right? Where, where God had been silent for 400 years, all of a sudden now in this coming of the angel Gabriel and his announcement to Zechariah, God has broken the silence. Right? He's, he's broken back on the scene. And one of the things that I think is interesting, this is just me kind of putting these together. I don't know if it's significant or not, but notice that the sign that the angel gives to Zechariah is he makes him silent. Here's how you're going to know this is true. And he makes him silent. Until the day your son is born, you will be silent. And, and the thing that struck me for the first time reading this is God was silent for 400 years. And all of a sudden, when Zechariah questions it, God says, all right, your turn to be silent because it's my turn to be at work. I don't, again, I don't know if that's significant or not, but it's just like, wow. Right, the, God shows up on the scene. He's like, it's my turn. You be quiet over there. I'll take over. Right? But here's what else the angel says. He says, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. The angel saying, you're going to be silent until the days that this takes place. But it will take place. Right? It's as good as done. When God makes a promise, it's as good as done. And so the angel shows up. He says, this is happening. It's not a matter of if it happens, it's when. Right? When these things take place. And he says that they will be fulfilled in their time. Almost as if God has had this date circled on his calendar. God doesn't keep a calendar. He exists outside of time. But for our understanding, it's like God had this date circled on his calendar from eternity past. Even though there was 400 years of silence, God knew what he was doing. All along, he had this day, this moment planned. It wasn't by accident that Zechariah and Elizabeth uh, came from priestly lineage. It wasn't by accident that they were unable to have children for much of their life. It wasn't by accident that Zechariah was chosen uh, by lots and then able to do temple duty. Like None of that was by accident. God was orchestrating all of this to happen. And this is what God does. Right? He's, he's always at work. He's just, even in the, in the pages of the Bible... We read Genesis 1 and 2, we get the creation account, we get to Genesis 3, and everything falls apart when Adam and Eve sin. But in Genesis 3.15, God makes a promise, and he says, there's going to be a day, there's going to be an offspring born, a child will be born, that ultimately will crush the head of the serpent, of the enemy. And all of the Old Testament like, just points forward to that day. Right? All of the Old Testament is God just unfolding his, his redemptive Plan And it takes a lot longer than most of us would like our plans to take, right? But God, all throughout the Old Testament, is, 
is unrolling his plan of redemption. And it's all coming to this moment where there's going to be a son born, an offspring born that's going to crush the head of the serpent. And even despite 400 years of silence, God was working towards this moment. Working towards the, the arrival of first of John, but to get underneath that a little bit, this is ultimately about the birth of Jesus. Because before Jesus comes, there's going to be one who's going to prepare the way, and that is John. So the angel's announcement, you're going to have a son. All of that was, was known from eternity past by the God who's orchestrating all these things in his own timing. It's almost as if the angel is saying, get ready, because hope is on the horizon. Redemption is on the horizon. Salvation is on the horizon, because the Messiah is almost here. Because it wouldn't be long until the same angel, Gabriel, would leave Zechariah, and he's going to show up just in my, my Bible, just a, a few lines later, and he's going to show up to a young girl named Mary. And he's going to give her the best news that the world has ever received. But that's next week's sermon. So here's where I want to kind of land us this morning. Here's, here's what I think, the, Zach, the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth, it, here's, here's what it says to us. Fear not, do not be afraid. Because even though God is silent, it does not mean that he is absent. Right? Even though God is, seems silent, it does not mean that he is still. Even though God might seem silent, it does not mean that he's not at work doing something. Right? He very much is. Right? That's, the, that's the story of the Bible. God is always at work. He's always doing something. I, I, I love what um, author, pastor, John Piper says. Maybe I've quoted it here before. I can't remember. But he's got a quote that just says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you might be aware of three of them. That's how God works. Right? He, he's always at work doing something. And we're not always aware of it. Right? We don't always see what God is doing. We don't always know how God's plans that seem imperceptible to us and, and his silence that seems imperceptible. Like, What is he doing? We can rest assured, at least from the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, knowing that he's doing something. We don't always get to see it. It's not for us to know. You know why? Because we're not God. Right? There's... There is an element of faith to this, that we're trusting that God is at work, that God is, is redeeming and saving, and, and he's, he's working even when we don't see it. Just because God is silent doesn't mean that he is still, that he's not working. And this is, can, is this not just good news for like everyday life? Because I don't know about you, I don't know, let's just, let's do this. I like to spend quiet times in the morning um, before the kids wake up, because after the kids wake up, there is no quiet time. All right, so I like to spend some quiet time in the morning. That's when I read my Bible and pray. Um, and, and I don't know how your quiet times go. Maybe they're much more profound than mine. But there's a lot of times 
where I'm reading through my reading for the day and I'll spend some time praying and I'll close my Bible and I'm just like, all right, now what? You know, in those moments, it doesn't feel like God is doing anything huge and significant, right? Anybody else have quiet times like that? Just me? All right, you guys' quiet times are much better than mine, clearly. Maybe you should be up here, all right? But my point is just that, that not every moment of everyday life feels like God is doing something huge and profound, but that doesn't mean that he's not at work. He's always at work. He's always at work. And so the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, just this is a reminder that even when it feels like God is silent, even when it feels like he's quiet, even when it feels like he's absent and far removed, it doesn't mean that he's not at work. It doesn't mean that there's no hope. It doesn't mean that he is disinterested. And so my question, I got a few questions for you this morning, but right, the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth points us to the reality that there is always hope because God is always at work. And so my question is just, where have you lost hope this morning? Right, where have you kind of maybe given up praying for something because you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed and God has not answered any of it. And it feels like he's distant. And it feels like he's far removed. And it feels like he's disinterested and he doesn't care. And so maybe you've just stopped. Like where, where have you lost hope this morning? Or where, and where, where has his perceived silence his perceived absence made you believe, actually, that, that he's just not at work? Where have you given up this morning? What have you stopped praying for, stopped asking for? Because the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth tells us that there is hope even when things feel hopeless. There's hope even when God feels silent. There's hope even when God feels absent. There's hope always because God is always at work. But the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth also tells us that there's hope because God has always been at work redeeming and saving his people. Remember, that's what the angel said to Zechariah. Right? Some of his first words to Zechariah in the temple were, your prayer has been heard. And that prayer was for the redemption of God's people, the salvation of God's people, because ultimately our hope is not in our situations, our circumstances, that we get what we want, that uh, right, whatever need we have is met. That Our ultimate hope, those things are important and we should pray for those things and God invites us to pray for those things. But our hope is not ultimately in situations and circumstances. Our hope is ultimately in Jesus Christ and the salvation and the redemption that is made available to us through Jesus Christ. Through his, his birth and, and subsequent perfect life in our place, ultimately through his death on the cross for our forgiveness of sins and for the hope of eternal life. That's where hope is. So I, I, I hope this morning that, you've, that you have that hope, that you've trusted in Jesus, 
that you have a relationship with the creator of the universe, not based on what you've done, but what Jesus did for you. And if you don't, let this be an invitation. The band's going to come and sing here in just a minute. We're going to respond to God's word. And if, if you've got doubts or questions about that, what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, or maybe you're just like, I don't even know where to start. We would love to have that conversation with you. Because for all this talk about hope and there being hope, apart from Jesus, there is no hope. But Jesus has come. And so hope is available to us. So I'm going to invite you to go ahead and stand with me this morning. The band's going to come. And we're just going to sing about this hope that we have in the person and work of Jesus. And so we're going to pray. Just ask you to respond however the Lord leads. Maybe you need to pray there in your seat. Maybe you need some, some counsel or you'd like somebody to pray with you or, or you just want to have a conversation, then, then I'll be down front. We would love to do that. So um, as we sing, as we pray this morning, you respond as the Lord leads. All right, let's pray together. Father, we come to you and uh, we can only come to you because of Jesus because of what he's done for us. And so, uh, Lord, help us to respond at this point in the service. Your, your word has been laid open before us, um, but ultimately, Father, it's your spirit that will move us to respond as you have us. And so, um, Lord, I pray that you would do that. Lord, where we need to, um, Lord, maybe we need to realize that, that there's hope in these areas in our lives where we didn't think there was any hope left. Lord, maybe we need to repent of, of just believing that you are far or distant or that you don't care. Lord, maybe we need to take back up praying for this thing or for this area of our life where uh, maybe we prayed for a while and we thought you didn't care, you weren't interested, or you were far removed, and so we stopped. Maybe our response this morning is to, to take that back up and to bring it to you in prayer. Lord, maybe the response this morning is to, to put our trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. Lord, however you see fit, I pray that you would move your people to respond this morning. Help us to respond, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.